Chapter Six, Part One of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gilles Leu. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Six, Part One. Bahia Blanca to Buenos Aires. Set out for Buenos Aires, Rio Sos, Sierra Ventana, Third Posta, Driving Horses, Bolas, Partridges and Foxes, Features of the Country, Long-Legged Plover, Teru Teru, Hailstorm, Natural Enclosures in the Sierra Tapalguen, Flesh of Puma, Meat Diet, Guardia del Monte. Effects of cattle on the vegetation. Cardoon. Buenos Aires. Corral where cattle are slaughtered. September 18th. I hired a gaucho to accompany me on my ride to Buenos Aires, though with some difficulty, as the father of one man was afraid to let him go, and another, who seemed willing, was described to me as so fearful that I was afraid to take him, for I was told that even if he saw an ostrich at a distance, he would mistake it for an Indian, and would fly like the wind away. The distance to Buenos Aires is about four hundred miles, and nearly the whole way through an uninhabited country. We started early in the morning, ascending a few hundred feet from the basin of green turf on which Bahia Blanca stands, we entered on a wide desolate plain. It consists of a crumbling argilaceo calcareous rock which, from the dry nature of the climate, supports only scattered tufts of withered uniformity. The weather was fine, but the atmosphere remarkably hazy. I thought the appearance foreboded a gale, but the gauchos said it was owing to the plain at some great distance in the interior, being on fire. After a long gallop, having changed horses twice, we reached the Rio Sauce. It is a deep, rapid, little stream, not above twenty-five feet wide. The second posta on the road to Buenos Aires stands on its banks. A little above there is a ford for horses, where the water does not reach to the horse's belly, but from that point, in its course to the sea, it is quite impassable, and hence makes a most useful barrier against the Indians. Insignificant as this stream is, the Jesuit falconer, whose information is generally so very correct, figures it as a considerable river, rising at the foot of the Cordillera. With respect to its source, I do not doubt that this is the case, for the gauchos assured me that in the middle of the dry summer this stream, at the same time with the Colorado, has periodical floods, which can only originate in the snow melting on the Andes. It is extremely improbable that a stream so small as the sauce then was 
should traverse the entire width of the continent, and indeed, if it were the residue of a large river, its waters, as in other ascertained cases, would be saline. During the winter, we must look to the springs round the Sierra Ventana as the source of its pure and limpid stream. I suspect the plains of Patagonia, like those of Australia, are traversed by many watercourses, which only perform their proper parts at certain periods. Probably this is the case with the water which flows into the head of Port Desire, and likewise with the Rio Chupat, on the banks of which masses of highly cellular scoriae were found by the officers employed in the survey. As it was early in the afternoon when we arrived, we took fresh horses and a soldier for a guide, and started for the Sierra de la Ventana. This mountain is visible from the anchorage at Bahia Blanca, and Captain Fitzroy calculates its height to be 3,340 feet, an altitude very remarkable on this eastern side of the continent. I am not aware that any foreigner, previous to my visit, had ascended this mountain, and indeed very few of the soldiers at Bahia Blanca knew anything about it. Hence we heard of beds of coal, of gold and silver, of caves, and of forests, all of which inflamed my curiosity, only to disappoint it. The distance from the posta was about six leagues over a level plain of the same character as before. The ride was, however, interesting, as the mountain began to show its true form. When we reached the foot of the main ridge, we had much difficulty in finding any water, and we thought we should have been obliged to have passed the night without any. At last we discovered some by looking close to the mountain, for at the distance, even of a few hundred yards, the streamlets were buried and entirely lost in the friable calcareous stone and loose detritus. I do not think nature ever made a more solitary, desolate, pile of rock. It well deserves its name of Hurtado, or Separated. The mountain is steep, extremely rugged, and broken, and so entirely destitute of trees and even bushes, that we actually could not make a skewer to stretch out our meat over the fire of thistle stalks. I call these thistle stalks for the want of a more correct name. I believe it is a species of Eryngium. The strange aspect of this mountain is contrasted by the sea-like plain, which not only abuts against its steep sides, but likewise separates the parallel ranges. The uniformity of the coloring gives an extreme quietness to the view. The whitish-gray of the quartz rock and the light brown of the withered grass of the plain, being unrivaled by any brighter tint. From custom, one expects to see in the neighborhood of a lofty and bold mountain, a broken country strewed over with huge fragments. Here nature shows that the last movement before the bed of the sea is changed into dry land may sometimes be one of tranquillity.
Under these circumstances, I was curious to observe how far from the parent rock any pebbles could be found. On the shores of Bahia Blanca and near the settlement, there was some of quartz which certainly must have come from this source. The distance is forty-five miles. The dew, which in the early part of the night wetted the saddle-cloth under which we slept, was in the morning frozen. The plain, though appearing horizontal, had insensibly sloped up to a height of between eight hundred and nine hundred feet above the sea. In the morning, ninth of September, the guide told me to ascend the nearest ridge, which he thought would lead me to the four peaks that crown the summit. The climbing up such rough rocks was very fatiguing. The sides were so indented that what was gained in one five minutes was often lost in the next. At last, when I reached the ridge, my disappointment was extreme in finding a precipitous valley as deep as the plain, which cut the chain traversely in two and separated me from the four points. This valley is very narrow, but flat-bottomed, and it forms a fine horse-pass for the Indians. As it connects the plains on the northern and southern sides of the range, having descended and while crossing it, I saw two horses grazing. I immediately hid myself in the long grass and began to reconnoitre. But as I could see no signs of Indians, I proceeded cautiously on my second ascent. It was late in the day, and this part of the mountain, like the other, was steep and rugged. I was on top of the second peak by two o'clock, but got there with extreme difficulty. Every twenty yards I had the cramp in the upper part of both thighs, so that I was afraid I should not have been able to have got down again. It was also necessary to return by another road, as it was out of the question to pass over the saddleback. I was therefore obliged to give up the two higher peaks. Their altitude was but little greater, and every purpose of geology had been answered, so that the attempt was not worth the hazard of any further exertion. I presume the cause of the cramp was the great change in the kind of muscular action, from that of hard riding to that of still harder climbing. It is a lesson worth remembering, as in some cases it might cause much difficulty. I have already said the mountain is composed of white quartz rock, and with it a little glossy clay slate is associated. At the height of a few hundred feet above the plain, patches of conglomerate adhered in several places to the solid rock. They resembled in hardness and in the nature of the cement the masses which may be seen daily forming on some coasts. I do not doubt these pebbles were in a similar manner aggregated, at a period when the great calcareous formation was depositing beneath the surrounding sea. 
We may believe that the jagged and battered forms of the hard quartz yet show the effects of the waves of an open ocean. I was, on the whole, disappointed with this ascent. Even the view was insignificant. A plain like the sea, but without its beautiful color and defined outline. The scene, however, was novel, and a little danger, like salt to meat, gave it a relish. That the danger was very little was certain, for my two companions made a good fire, a thing which is never done when it is suspected that Indians are near. I reached the place of our bivouac by sunset, and drinking much mate, and smoking several cigaritos, soon made up my bed for the night. The wind was very strong and cold, but I never slept more comfortably. September 10th In the morning, having fairly scudded before the gale, we arrived by the middle of the day at the Sauce Posta. In the road we saw great numbers of deer, and near the mountain a guanaco. The plain, which abuts against the Sierra, is traversed by some curious gullies, of which one was about twenty feet wide and at least thirty deep. We were obliged, in consequence, to make a considerable circuit before we could find a pass. We stayed the night at the posta, the conversation, as was generally the case being about the Indians. The Sierra Ventana was formerly a great place of resort, and three or four years ago there was much fighting here. My guide had been present when many Indians were killed. The women escaped to the top of the ridge and fought most desperately with great stones, many thus saving themselves. September 11th Proceeded to the third posta in company with the lieutenant who commanded it. The distance is called fifteen leagues, but it is only guesswork, and is generally overstated. The road was uninteresting, over a dry, grassy plain, and on our left hand, at a greater or less distance, there were some low hills, a continuation of which we crossed close to the posta. Before our arrival, we met a large herd of cattle and horses, guarded by fifteen soldiers, but we were told many had been lost. It is very difficult to drive animals across the plains, for if in the night a puma, or even a fox, approaches, nothing can prevent the horses dispersing in every direction, and a storm will have the same effect. A short time since, an officer left Buenos Aires with five hundred horses, and when he arrived at the army, he had under twenty. Soon afterwards, we perceived by the cloud of dust that a party of horsemen were coming towards us. When far distant, my companions knew them to be Indians by their long hair streaming behind their backs. The Indians generally have a fillet round their heads, but never any covering, and their black hair blowing across their swarthy faces heightens to an uncommon degree the wildness of their appearance. They turned out to be a party of Bernantio's friendly tribe going to a Salina for salt. The Indians eat much salt, their children sucking it like sugar. 
This habit is very different from that of the Spanish gauchos, who, leading the same kind of life, eat scarcely any. According to Mongo Park, it is people who live on vegetable food who have an unconquerable desire for salt. The Indians gave us good-humored nods as they passed at full gallop, driving before them a troop of horses, and followed by a train of lanky dogs. September 12th and 13th I stayed at this posta two days, waiting for a troop of soldiers, which General Rosas had the kindness to send to inform me, would shortly travel to Buenos Aires, and he advised me to take the opportunity of the escort. In the morning we rode to some neighboring hills to view the country, and to examine the geology. After dinner the soldiers divided themselves into two parties for a trial of skill with the bolas. Two spears were stuck in the ground twenty-five yards apart, but they were struck and entangled only once in four or five times. The balls can be thrown fifty or sixty yards, but with little certainty. This, however, does not apply to a man on horseback, for when the speed of the horse is added to the force of the arm, it is said that they can be whirled with effect to the distance of eighty yards. As a proof of their force, I may mention that at the Falkland Islands, when the Spaniards murdered some of their own countrymen and all the Englishmen, a young friendly Spaniard was running away when a great tall man, by name Luciano, came at full gallop after him, shouting to him to stop, and saying that he only wanted to speak to him. Just as the Spaniard was on the point of reaching the boat, Luciano threw the balls. They struck him on the legs with such a jerk as to throw him down and to render him for some time insensible. The man, after Luciano had had his talk, was allowed to escape. He told us that his legs were marked to great wheels, where the thong had wound round, as if he had been flogged with a whip. In the middle of the day two men arrived, who brought a parcel from the next posta to be forwarded to the general, so that besides these two our party consisted this evening of my guide and self, the lieutenant, and his four soldiers. The latter were strange beings, the first a fine young negro, the second half Indian and negro, and the two others nondescripts, namely an old Chilean miner, the color of mahogany, and another partly a mulatto, but two such mongrels with such detestable expressions I never saw before. At night, when they were sitting round the fire and playing at cards, I retired to view such a Salvatore Rosa scene. They were seated under a low cliff, so that I could look down upon them. Around the party were lying dogs, arms, remnants of deer and ostriches, and their long spears were stuck in the turf. Further in the dark background, their horses were tied up, ready for any sudden danger. If the stillness of the desolate plain was broken by one of the dogs barking, a soldier, leaving the fire, would place his head close to the ground and thus slowly scan the horizon, even if the noisy teru teru uttered its scream, there would be a pause in the conversation, 
and every head, for a moment, a little inclined. What a life of misery these men appear to us to lead! They were at least ten leagues from the Sos Posta, and since the murder committed by the Indians, twenty from another. The Indians are supposed to have made their attack in the middle of the night, for very early in the morning after the murder, they were luckily seen approaching this posta. The whole party here, however, escaped, together with the troops of horses, each one taking a line for himself and driving with him as many animals as he was able to manage. The little hovel built of thistle stalks in which they slept neither kept out the wind nor rain. Indeed, in the latter case the only effect the roof had was to condense it into larger drops. They had nothing to eat except what they could catch, such as ostriches, deer, armadillos, etc., and their only fuel was the dry stalks of a small plant somewhat resembling an aloe, the sole luxury which these men enjoyed was smoking the little paper cigars and sucking mate. I used to think that the carrion vultures, man's constant attendants on these dreary plains, while seated on the little neighboring cliffs, seemed by their very patience to say, Ah, when the Indians come we shall have a feast. In the morning we all sallied forth to hunt, and although we had not much success, there were some animated chases. Soon after starting, the party separated, and so arranged their plans, that at certain time of the day, in guessing which they show much skill, they should all meet from different points of the compass on a plain piece of ground, and thus drive together the wild animals. One day I went out hunting at Bahia Blanca, but the men there merely rode in a crescent, each being about a quarter of a mile apart from the other. A fine male ostrich, being turned by the headmost riders, tried to escape on one side. The gauchos pursued a reckless pace, twisting their horses about with the most admirable command, and each man whirling the balls round his head. At length, the foremost threw them. Revolving through the air in an instant, the ostrich rolled over and over, its legs fairly lashed together by the thong. The plains abound with three kinds of partridge, two of which are as large as hen pheasants. Their destroyer, a small and pretty fox, was also singularly numerous. In the course of the day we could not have seen less than forty or fifty. They were generally near their earths, but the dogs killed one. When we returned to the posta, we found two of the party returned who had been hunting by themselves. They had killed a puma, and had found an ostrich's nest with twenty-seven eggs in it. Each of these is said to equal in weight eleven hen's eggs, so that we obtained from this one nest as much food as two hundred and ninety-seven hen's eggs would have given. End of chapter 6, part 1 Recording by Gilles Lehoux, Montréal, Canada January 2007